first speaker is Peter Martin, um, who is um, economic correspondent, economics correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, and The Canberra Times. Um, used to be a colleague of mine at the ABC. And once for his sins, which he's spent a lifetime repenting for, he was actually a Commonwealth Treasury official. <laughs> but don't let that spoil it. He's repented long ago. Please welcome Peter Martin. It's always daunting to give a talk in front of Norman Swan. He knows so much. Actually, a lot of this um, you may know anyway, or suspect. And uh, the thing I should say, let's see if this works. It works. Um, the, the, the thing I, I should say first is, I loved this event two years ago. It's probably the, the best event uh, that I, I've spoken at, uh, the most interested, grounded people and questions. So uh, questions and discussion uh, will be good. So topic, why is inequality a big deal? Now that topic, and I, I chose those words says something about me. You see, I didn't used to think it was a big deal. When I was at university, I was told it wasn't a big deal. I was told that uh, absolutes matter. And they inculcate you. Actually, Richard, who's speaking presently, who has a PhD in economics, I don't, will, um, will remember this. Economics one, they tell you. And logically, it makes sense. They say, look, uh, our job is to grow the pie. Later we can worry about how it's divided, but surely everyone's better, at least everyone's better on average, if the pie's bigger. So let's not worry about that. That, that, that was very much uh, the view um, in the 70s. Absolutes matter, absolutely. Then um, I was introduced, uh, I think in my final year at university, to this thought experiment. Imagine you were given a pay rise of $100 a week. Would you feel better? Okay. okay, now, imagine that you were given a pay rise of $100 a week and you found out that everyone else where you work got a pay rise of $600 a week. <laughs> Would you feel better? No, you'd feel worse, and you'd feel worse than if, you'd never, than if no one had ever got a pay rise. So that's, uh, it, it may be illogical, but um, it's real. And formally, uh, th this has been sort of uh, demonstrated in an experiment uh, called the ultimatum game. I don't know if any of you know the ultimatum game. Someone comes along to you, you're in the street with a friend, someone comes along and uh, says, here's $40. You can keep it, you too can keep it. No problem. The uh, experiment is, um, I'm gonna give all the 40 to you, Peter, and uh, you have to decide how much to share with your friend, how to split it. Now, your friend can then accept that offer, that ultimatum, or not, deal or no deal. Um, if the friend doesn't accept it, none of you get a thing. Now, the rational thing to do <laughs> would be to keep $39 yourself and give the other person $1, because they'll still accept it, won't they? They're better off. That's, uh, that's not what happens. Actually, most people, when 
sort of surveyed in, in games, uh, in, in the laboratory setting, split it 50-50. And when the offer gets down to 30%, you know, like I suppose your uh, $14, whatever it is, uh, uh, yeah, when it gets down to about that, anything below that, person B doesn't accept it. They say, sorry, no deal. That's what human beings are really like. Now, we have uh, a more formal uh, uh, sort of uh, experiment, because that was just a laboratory experiment. The Sacramento Bee, it's a newspaper in Sacramento, in Los Angeles. Um, it, it used, it's like freedom of information law, uh, a right to know law in the US, to obtain a continuously updated file of every state employee's wage, and that included the employees in universities. And it put it on its website. Now, um, the experiment done by the US Bureau of uh, Economic Research in 2010 was to randomly email university staff members. Some got the email, some didn't. In fact, they all got an email. Um, the, the email invited them to take part in the survey about their attitudes to uh, their job and how they felt and whether they were thinking of moving on. But half of them were told about the website. What they found, well, of course, when, when they look, you see things like that. You know, that's my wage. <laughs> those, are the, those are the top wages. I got that off the Sacramento Bee website. What they found was that the lowly paid workers who hadn't heard about the website, they felt pretty good. Um, those who had read the website felt rotten and were highly likely to leave their job. And they followed up two years later, and a good deal of them had. Um, amongst highly paid workers, indeed, you know, probably amongst those people at the very top, they felt no better. So, absolutes matter, and there's something more. Twenty years ago, uh, at Melbourne University, I met an actuary called uh, David Knox. I'm always in awe of actuaries, because they are seriously brighter than uh, I will be, than anyone I know. He, he developed this nifty experiment using the Commonwealth superannuation scheme, because there's a lot of data there, and they gave him access to it. it. It had the date of birth of members, and it had their final salary. And because he, he was able to get many years of it, it also had their dates of death. What he found out, and bear in mind that, that these are, these are well-paid, these are all well-paid well people. Well-paid then, it was uh, 1997. Um, back then, money meant something, right? So um, what he found was that how long you have left, that is how long you'll live after retirement, depends on your final salary. And most of this wasn't something to do with poverty. These public servants were not in poverty, right? Um, this, uh, I, I drew up this graph. He, he didn't put this graph in his uh, paper, but he, he put the figures. So um, here we go. Standardised mortality ratios. A mortality ratio, 100 is will you die when expected? Um, uh, 160 is you're 60% more likely to die um, in that year than expected, uh, and, and so on. So. Uh, 20 to 30,000, that's uh, at the, uh, the bottom that he surveyed, their mortality ratio was 148. Okay? They were a good deal 
a good deal uh, more likely to die in any given year. Uh, Forty to $50,000, again, remember these are figures from 20 years ago, so that was a wage that, that meant a lot. Um, they're, they're actually less likely to die than average, 94%. Uh, Fifty to $60,000, serious money in those days, they're um, only 80% as likely to die as the average. And those earning more than 60K, which is um, 100,000 uh, these days, um, they had about half the likelihood of dying in any given year as those who had a lot of money. The um, mathematical uh, upshot, the relatively poor died two years sooner. Um, but that was only among public servants. Um, Andrew Lee, who's now a, um, a politician, but he, he, he was um, an academic, uh, used other data. Uh, in fact, it's from the Hilda survey. It's released today. It's a, a long-term uh, survey of, uh, of uh, 140,000 Australians. And uh, he finds that uh, over the population as a whole, the top fifth in terms of earnings um, will die five years later than the bottom fifth. The uh, Senate inquired into inequality and uh, found reasons for this. I don't mean reasons for the inequality, we'll get to that, but reasons for death. Um, these, these are household incomes. Yeah, I don't really need to go through what the figures say, but you'll see the, the less you earn, the more likely you are to die of heart disease. I think that, no, no, the more likely you are to have heart disease, the more likely you are to have diabetes. This may be some of your own experiences, by the way, in your, in, in your work, I, I, I don't know. The more likely you are to have depression, and the more likely you are to have cancer. Really, really strange. So, um, does it mean the economy is sicker? Arthur Alkin, in uh, 1975, wrote a groundbreaking book, and this was around, of course, at the time I was studying economics, called Equality and Efficiency, The Big Trade-Off. Note the words. He argued you, you couldn't have both. You couldn't have an economy that worked well, and you couldn't have things... Um, uh, evenly distributed. He said you need a realistic prospect of getting better off than everyone else to uh, encourage you to take risks. The IMF and the OECD have uh, much more recently had uh, second thoughts. I need to introduce you to the Gini index. Um, it's an index of uh, 0 to 100. 0 is perfect equality. It's in that ultimatum game, if you like. It's if uh, it was 50-50 uh, uh, and uh, 100 is all of the... Uh, all of the income going to one person. Um, they found that uh, lifting inequality by three Gini points, which, by the way, is what inequality has increased in the, the past two years, um, drags down growth, economic growth. This is the OECD, by the way. It dragged down, drags down economic growth by one-third of a percent for 25 years. That's a cumulative loss over 25 years of 8.5%. Now, think about what that means. Let's see, we've just had an election fought, supposedly fought over company tax cuts. Company tax cuts over that same period of time, over a few decades, were said to lift GDP, lift the economy by 1%. 
That's the effect that uh, the OECD, or, or the, the people who, who did the study for the OECD, uh, found. And now we've lost, we're trying to go back. Right. Um, the, the IMF uh, did a, a slightly different thing. They, they, they said it was the, the length of economic expansion, and we've had economic growth now since uh, the early 90s, sort of the longest period uh, of, of most countries, and that's because we're relatively equal. Um, we used to be, if you go back to 1995, we used to be on the, this is the Gini coefficient, we used to be pretty much average, okay? About the same as the OECD average. Um, the Treasury put these figures together. Go forward 15 years and you'll see we're, we're, uh, we're getting worse. So what about Australia? That's my dad. That's my dad in his shed in Warradale, Adelaide, uh, near Glenelg, uh, with his lathe. My dad is 86. In uh, January, he was uh, admitted to uh, Flinders Medical Centre after feeling awful um, and falling down. He had his gallbladder removed. He was very well looked after. Um, my dad's lived for nearly 90 years. For the first two-thirds of his life, Australia was becoming more equal. It's only in the last third, it's only the last 30 or, th or so years that's actually been the aberration. Um, Andrew Lee, again, uh, put these uh, figures together, um, which is uh, a very difficult thing to do, and you can see from some of the straight lines he's, he's had to uh, uh, sort of... Um, had to, to fill in gaps. Um, it's in his book, Battlers and Billionaires. Um, so we go back to uh, the beginning of the 1900s. You'll see that with the exception of a, a, a spike uh, around the time of the Second World War, right through to the 1980s, the bottom line's the one to look at, by the way. The, uh, the bottom line is uh, the dotted one. Um, that's income. That's the income share held by the top 1%. Now, for reference, the, uh, the top 1% is uh, $200,000 a year. So the, uh, the income share held by the top percent was going down right up until the early 80s in Australia. Way the bulk of my dad's life, right? Australia was becoming a more equal place. The line at the top is uh, the line for wealth, and uh, it's more extreme. Since the 1980s, or in the case of uh, wealth uh, since the mid-70s, it's been reversing. The top earners have got more. So over that generation, the 25 or so years, the uh, share held by the top 1% has doubled. And uh, for what it's worth, uh, for reference, the share held by the top 0.1% has tripled. It's only happening for men. The um, income gap for women has actually been shrinking throughout all of that time. Um, so high-income men are speeding ahead. Low-income men are falling way behind. But um, women are doing better at the bottom end and not quite so well at the top end. So uh, women are becoming more equal. Now, 
the graph I've just showed you isn't really evocative. So Andrew with a, a colleague, Mike Pottinger, and uh, help from Professor Geoffrey Blaney, the historian, prepared another one. This is a chief executive uh, of BHP, their remuneration. It, it's um, a range because they didn't always have dot points and they, they had to infer from the annual reports. The, the annual reports listed the range and uh, you know, the, the assumption is that the chief executive is the highest paid person, but you can't tell. Uh, that's as a proportion of uh, the average income. So you, you see the BHP executive way back at the beginning of BHP was paid a bit more than 50 times average income. It fell, it rose during the war, rose at the beginning of the 50s, and um, toward the end of that part of the graph, it gets right down to a mere six times average income. BHP survived um, with... Uh, uh, the chief executive getting six times average income. Well, that was then. Since then, uh, there's an executive firm that uh, gets exact measurements, and Andrew updated his graph. So, um, the two obviously don't completely mesh, but um, you can see that the BHP chief executive uh, went up to a peak of 250 times average earnings. What on earth has happened? Is it too much? Well, I'd say it's too much, and uh, my friend uh, Professor Sue Richardson from uh, the Institute of Labor Studies summed it up beautifully on uh, one of those ABC talks. She said, I've got no doubt that inequality is too high. I don't know what's the right level, and some level of inequality is probably inevitable and probably desirable, but I'm quite sure we've got too much and we're going in the wrong direction. So whatever the optimum level is, it's less than what we've got at the moment. And that, that, that's probably how, uh, how I'd accept it, how, how, how I'd sum it up. Um, now, most of us don't see it. Most of us think we're average. Empirica Research uh, did some work for the ACTU a few years back where they asked what people thought. And seriously, most of every income group thinks it's average. 58% of those earning 20,000 to 40,000 thought that was the average wage. 51% of those earning 100,000 to 150,000 thought that was the average wage. We don't get out much. And that's one of the reasons why this can continue. But they asked uh, how people thought the pie was divided between the, uh, the richest uh, and the, uh, the less rich. Um, Australians uh, thought that uh, the richest 20% had 40% of the wealth. They asked what Australians thought should happen and they thought that was too excessive. They thought the richest 20% should only have 24% uh, of the world and the poorest 20% should have 14%. This is what really happens. The richest 20% have, or had then, it was uh, seven or so years ago, 60% of the wealth, 61. The worst 20% had 1% of the wealth. Why is this happening? Um, a number of reasons. I'll go through some of them quickly and the, and the last one slowly. Uh, the minimum wage is shrinking. That's to do with the, uh, the income setting. They have to really justify, you know, getting inflation. So naturally, um, as a proportion of the median wage, uh, it falls over time. 
Um, we were the highest minimum wage in the OECD. Uh, we've fallen to the sixth highest. Unionisation is uh, shrinking. Um, this is uh, work from the IMF, actually, and uh, it shows that um, there's uh, an association. The less unionisation you have, the greater the proportion of, uh, of income uh, that the, the top 10% have. New start is shrinking. It's, uh, it's uh, indexed appallingly. So that's, uh, that's some of the reasons. It used to be just below the poverty line. Super tax concessions, of course. This graph comes from the Australia Institute, Richard. Um, you, you'll uh, see there that um, the vast bulk of tax concessions uh, go to the rich. The top 10% of income earners get uh, about 32% of the income. The bottom 60% get 27% of, uh, of the income tax concessions. So that's, uh, that's sort of institutional things. More generally, three theories as to why it's getting worse. Automation, superstars, and rent seekers. No. Um, the automation argument is that these days education really matters. Think about if there's something wrong with your car. Once you could have fixed it. These days you need, well, you need a degree to fix it. But you also need skills. You need skills even talking to someone on the phone who can talk you through it. Um, the argument is, and it's not one that I'm completely happy with, and I'm not happy with the implications. The implication is that everyone should get an education and then there'd be no problem. Um, and that's, that's ridiculous, because there'll always be some people uh, who weren't. But so many tasks need specialisation and uh, they're the ones that get the high income and, and the rest don't. That's the argument. The superstar theory. I have called it on the radio the Elton John theory. It's that because the world is more global, the world only needs one designer of an iPhone, and she's probably got two or three designers of similar things. It only needs one or two really good musicians. And so in order to attract, in order for BHP to attract the best, it needs to pay a lot to get the person from, the best person from the rest of the world. Uh, you know, Bill Gates, all of that, they, they had uh, tremendous skills and people will pay a lot for them. Uh, that's uh, an explanation which I don't think is true at all, actually. The, uh, the third argument, which I think stands up a lot, is rent-seeking, which has a, a less polite name. Um, Paul Fritters and Gigi Foster are uh, economists. Paul Fritters at the University of Queensland, Gigi Foster at University of New South Wales. And they decided to test the other theories, saying, well, all right, let, let's look at who the rich Australians actually are. And uh, Business Review Weekly does its uh, survey of the, the rich 200 list. Let's see how they got their money. Well, um, they didn't get them inventing iPhones, and they didn't invent them, they didn't get them from pop music. Overwhelmingly, of the, of the, the 200 Australians, 61% made their money in property. 23% made their money in natural resources. Another 19% made them from managing investments. Now, these are all things where influence matters. It's the government that decides what you can mine. It's the government that can rezone land. Um, 
their point is that over half, and the, the overwhelming bulk of the money, of the richest 200 got there not necessarily through political favours, although there are certainly political donors among them, got there through influence. And it's a growing process. Um, you think of the superannuation, uh, the, the big argument we had over the superannuation tax concessions in the election, virtually no argument over a separate move in the budget that takes money away from New Start recipients. These people believe they have a voice. They like to use it. Tax cuts are a big part of them. Again, um, Andrew Lee with uh, another um, economist reckon that over the last 30 years, reductions in tax rates explain one half to one third of the rise in the income share of the top 1%. So I'm attracted to that theory now. The jury's out. I don't know why it's growing, but uh, I think that theory has a lot to it. And I think some of the other theories are too neat and don't accord with the facts. What would help? Well, uh, uh, I'll quote from Paul Fritters, uh, he, uh, some kind of anti-corruption move. He says, one could imagine using Google Earth to estimate the size of the mansion possessed by a former councillor who 20 years earlier awarded mining concessions. One could imagine using sophisticated search and internet algorithms to estimate how many children of politicians lived as students in suspiciously comfortable circumstances. So I think that's one thing we could do. Um, that would help. Another is to consciously examine every government measure. Now, this government, uh, as soon as it came to office, it uh, removed from the budget the table that usually said who was made better off, uh, who was made uh, worse off. Actually, the Treasury does this. Um, it has what it calls a... Um, uh, it's called its wellbeing framework. In undertaking its mission, Treasury takes a broad view it believes well-being is a person's freedom to lead a life they have reason to value. And it has uh, sort of dot points, and uh, the two of the dot points I'll mention are things it regards as important are not only the opportunities available to the population as a whole, Ken Henry put this in, the distribution of those opportunities and the overall level and allocation of risks. So you shouldn't make... Uh, people, as we do through our super system uh, these days, bear a lot of risk themselves and things shouldn't be too complex for people to measure. Um, the other thing I think would help is making money less important. It's going to be really hard to change those figures. I can't see the chief executive of BHP going back to being paid seven times average earnings. But money's only one aspect of inequality. Uh, we have unequal access to health. We have extraordinarily unequal access to dental care. There's something about that in the paper this morning, the number of people who can't afford to go to the dentist when they need it. Um, we have unequal access to good schools, unequal access to good housing, unequal access to good food, unequal access to respect. Now, if we could get money out of the equation, and that's what governments used to do, they used to say, all right, well, we can't do that much about income distribution, but we can make sure everyone can get a good stay at a hospital, right? We can make sure everyone can get dental care. That way it might matter less, and that would be actually a really good thing to do, along with the uh, inequality impact statements I talked about. 
I put my dad there last uh, because he had excellent access to health for free and was uh, brought back to life, actually, um, when they removed his gallbladder in January. And because here's a sign that the way things have been going for the past 30 years needn't be the way they can continue. They could continue or they could revert to being how they were for most of my dad's life. So uh, I'm happy to start the discussion and thank you.